I was listening to Only Artists. It's like one of my uh, go-to podcasts, really, and they pair an artist with a writer or a, a poet. Um, and it's usually a really lovely, like, informal conversation like this. Um, and there's a really nice podcast with Katie Patterson. Um, and she sits down with this author, David Mitchell, and he referred to this thing that I've not really come across before. Um, and, and he like he refers to it as the compost heap, okay. which I thought was a really wonderful expression. Um, and it's See, not his idea, it's not new. Um, I think Tolkien might have even been the first person to really talk about it, but the compost heap for him is this, is sort of everything you've ever read, you know, the plays that you've been to see, the exhibitions that you've been to see, the podcasts that you've listened to even, maybe, you know, the bus rides that you've been on, like everything that sort of makes you you, that you then draw from in your own work, the sort of nutrients, they provide the nutrients that you then draw from and that you feed off of. And I thought that that was a really lovely way of thinking about making and I can really relate to that. So even now when we're like on the bus and we're, I can see the Battersea Power Station development, like I, it's all adding to this kind of rich compost heap uh, of kind of stuff that I'm gonna hopefully, yeah, spend my lifetime kind of feeding off and using in my work. Yeah, I chose the four three six because, so for one, um, it starts at my studio. So my studio is with Set, uh, based in Lewisham, uh, and the four three six is just across the road. Uh, but also, it connects all the way. I had a sort of a, an epiphany the other day because I'm working on a project in Battersea, working with. Um, an organization called Contemporary Collaborations, which um, was set up by an artist and curator, Erin Hughes, um, when she was at the Royal College of Art. Uh, and she was working just part-time, weekends, with um, this antique shop across the road, Robert, Robert Young Antiques, uh, and decided to set up a, um, a window display project uh, where she would invite artists that were studying at the RCA, um, and give them some time and some space and some money to, to make uh, a new artwork in response to an object from the, the antique shop and from that collection. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to be the sixth artist doing that. And, um, and so it was just kind of a really interesting realisation that there was a bus that directly from my studio, just one bus that would carry me from Lewisham all the way to Battersea. Mm -hmm. uh, a ridiculously, yeah, like yeah. a meandering route, um, but beautiful on a day like today. So I studied at Camberwell, the 436 yeah, goes through Camberwell. Mm -hmm. It passes probably at least three or four places that I've lived in London. Uh, and my work is very much about that. Um, like my thinking is very much about domestic space, okay. about urban domestic living and those issues. Um, and so I tend to use a lot of found objects and a lot of mm -hmm. things taken from IKEA. Mm. IKEA, the IKEA catalogue is a big kind of resource for me because I guess it symbolises a time where 
everyone is movable or has to be movable. People probably only stay in their apartments for a year before they move on to the next place or are forced further out. And so there's much more of a reliance or a need to make things or to, to own things, to own furniture that are flat packable, that's easily movable. And I think that's something that I'm thinking a lot with the work too is making things or things that can be made and then remade yeah. things that can be sort of yeah. destroyed um, uh, and you know created into something new uh, I'm not very I'm not particularly precious with the work in many ways and um, I use a lot of found objects found materials pull from uh, like you know a skip dive to, to just get kind of surplus material that's yeah. would otherwise be waste product essentially I try not to, I feel like as, as a sculptor you're maybe more conscious that you're just making more things that the world doesn't necessarily need yeah. um, so I think there's real value in just kind of taking something that is already in existence or is only otherwise going to go into landfill it's partly a reality yeah. brought about the fact that London is such a kind of you know the economic stability of, yeah. of being an artist in London it's so precarious yeah. that I don't really have the funding to, to make or to you know buy all these expensive sculptural materials yeah. it's kind of what can you do with your, what you're surrounded by yeah. in many ways being above ground being on buses and walking a lot you're more kind of visually in tune to the city yeah. and more aware of the objects that are around you. So like passing certain routes or whatever, you'll accumulate things yeah. depending on what you're passing. So I, I feel like um, I'm living in Deptford and at the minute there's a lot of construction just to the back of where, where we're living. And I feel like in a funny way, that is already informing my thinking and some of the things that I'm making and some of the materials that I'm choosing to use. There is, um, there's a beautiful, I mean, at, at the minute, I feel like we're quite lucky, but there's a lot of blossom trees that are kind of sprouting now. And I feel like they are, it's usually so fleeting, like a week or two, they'll, they'll last. But, um, or maybe I'm just more in tune to it this year than ever because I'm passing it on my routes to, to, where, to the studio. Um, but there's this beautiful blossom tree that's kind of embedded in a in a hoarding. There's a big kind of new housing development that's happening just to the back of New Cross Station. Yeah. And I kind of love how this tree is uh, wedged within the hoarding. Um, and I've just been like meticulously sort of documenting that at different stages of the day. Every time I pass it, it's like a, a, a new thing or a new, it looks slightly different. Um, so that's something that I think has almost become a photographic project just because I'm so drawn to it. I don't know if I have a ritual starting the day. Um, like I definitely don't like start with yoga or anything like that. But I think something that's become quite important um, and feeds into the work in different ways, maybe, um, maybe unconsciously, is, is through podcasts. I make, I make quite repetitive, <laughs> I know, ironic, but maybe that's also why I wanted to, to do one as well and be on the other side of that. Um, but yeah, I think podcasts are, are, is where I get so much uh, fulfillment and 
research and ideas, um, I tend to make quite repetitive, labor-intensive work. And so, so podcast is quite easy to kind of zone out from that. Like I don't really need to be thinking so much about what I'm doing if yeah. it's like just one task that needs to be repeated. I think actually when you overthink things, that's when you have certain issues or you, you'll, you'll kind of, you know, cause yourself more undue stress or cause yourself problems. And really what you need to do is just kind of zone out, accept that that is the task that you're going to do. You're going to do that yeah. for the next few hours. You're going to listen to a great podcast yeah. uh, and then get, yeah, get ideas through that. You always kind of wonder as an artist why you're drawn to the things you make. Um, and it would be much easier if I made conceptual work yeah. and I didn't have to spend, you know, hours and hours and hours making things or wrapping things with plaster or, you know, painting things with resin. Mm. Um, you know, from a purely practical point of view, that makes no sense. But then I guess mm. you're you're drawn to the things that you want, want to do, you're drawn to things that you want to make. And so, yeah. uh, for me, repetition is that. I tend to make things in, like, series as well, I guess. Like, I don't tend yeah. to have, like, a unique idea and that be, like, a standalone object. Things yeah. are part of a body of work for me. Um, so I'll often make two or three things side by side, okay. um, which I quite like, like a like a set of like a triplets almost, and yeah. then they have a conversation between them, which I, I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, right and Van Damme. It's, your, it's like your it, names. Yeah, it's our surnames. So yeah, Josh Wright and then Guillaume Van Damme, um, and. I think we're quite lucky that it, like our surnames are quite strong. I think yeah. as a collective, it worked out really well. It's very funny how these things happen. I never sort of saw myself working in a collaboration with Guillaume. It just came about very, very organically. We um, we met at an art opening. Like it was really kind of random yeah. chance encounter, um, and then. I think we were both doing what well, I was studying on my BA at the time. I was in second year at Camberwell, uh, and Guillaume was just finishing his master's. Um, and his background is more art history, um, uh, but also he comes from a family, like a very creative family. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and we met, uh, and it was a kind of, you know, a nice conversation, uh, an art opening. It was nothing, you know, particularly, you know, grappling. Um, but but then we kept bumping into each other at different openings. Uh, I'd see him at certain things. We'd like randomly bump into each other on buses, and it was almost like, oh, this is like a sustained yeah, back to buses. Like I remember, we, we were both going to an opening, but yet yeah, bumped into each other on the bus to said opening. Um, so it it just kept happening, and then it became more of a thing where we would then message each other and start going to these openings together. Um, and then through that, I think naturally he was interested in making more, maybe that was my influence on him. Um, I was interested, um, in just, you know, making, showing and putting my work out there. So naturally the conversation turned to what we would do in that space. And often it was just kind of a jokey conversation of like, oh, this is a really awkward space or I don't really like this show or that didn't work, but I really like that. Um, and then we were very fortunate. There was um, uh, an, a program called Fig Two, 
that was happening at the ICA. Um, so Fig One was this big thing in the early 2000s. Yeah. It was set up by uh, Jay Joplin, director of White Cube, founder and director of White Cube, and um, Mark Francis, who's at Galgosian, but I think at the time was a freelance curator. Yeah. Uh, and it was a really intense program. It was 50 exhibitions in 50 weeks in, um, I think it was in Soho. And so Fig 2 was the kind of reawakening of that idea, and it was curated by Fatosh Estep, who's now the director of the Liverpool, the next um, Liverpool Biennial. And um, the, the kind of idea was the same, 50 exhibitions in 50 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, we, um, we were just loving going to these openings. They would happen every Monday. They, it was crazy, they'd open them the shows on Monday evenings the show would run all the way through to the Sunday and then you'd deinstall through the night and then reopen again on the Monday so it was absolutely <laughs> insane yeah. uh, very fast paced and wonderful uh, and a lot of energy and you'd get the same people that were going back every week to the to the opening so there was a really nice community as well that rallied around that yeah. and I think um, I, I at some point had just seen an article that Fatosh had given uh, about the project and she'd sort of talked about how it was a sort of mutating program and that she'd had certain artists figured out but not the whole thing and so at one point Kiam and I just approached her at an opening and said you know we have an idea for the space we would love to, to pitch this idea to you and um, and she was really open and receptive we kind of looked we worked very site specifically um, and we're thinking about the kind of awkwardness of the ICA studio as a space, as a gallery space and it felt very much like a gym um, and the gym resonated with us and sort of brought out ideas of kind of, I guess, issues around contemporary gym culture and gender and sexuality, all these sort of questions that are quite prevalent and um, so it just seemed like the great the greatest use of this space to transform the ICA studio into a gym but also to actively program it like a gym so we we yeah we had 27 live events in one week wow. um, we had you know yoga and pilates but then we also commissioned artists to have like adaptations of, of exercise uh, and like performances so so we had um, Adam Faramawi did like this post-rave sweat fatigue workout we had Karima Rashadu, who, who did a series of yoga poses all around sort of ex-boyfriends. Oh. Uh, and like uh, Monster Shetwind as well. So it was, yeah, it was such an, an incredible uh, first kind of collaboration. And we haven't looked back really. We've been working together for five years now. I have a lot of friends that really struggle with this. They really struggle with self-identifying as an artist. And I, I mean, yes, I do other things um, to, to support myself, to make my work, but it's never been an, a problem to be like, yes, I, that is, I'm an artist, that is, that is what I do, and I kind of relish that, and I, and I kind of relish those awkward conversations, or, you know, you'll, you'll chat to an Uber driver, and they'll ask you what you do, It'd just be like, yeah, I make sculpture, and then obviously, their assumption of sculpture is, is, is very different to, to perhaps what mine would be. Um, and they 
perhaps expect you uh, using marble yeah. or you know or you know wood driftwood or something you're carving and it's like a very like rooted in tradition and history yeah. um, and I really relish those conversations where you can almost try and convince your Uber driver that there is value to using found material there is yeah. you know it opens up certain questions rather than you know perhaps using a very art history laden material like marble doesn't yeah. um, so I really I really relish those somewhat awkward conversations um, but it is something that I'm continually grappling with I don't think my grandparents entirely know what I do which I like I've been reading a lot um, or rereading almost um, this text by David Harvey called Right to the City um, and that sort of explores you know the link between urbanization and capitalism mm -hmm. uh, and you'll see as we get further towards Battersea but Battersea as an area is changing immensely uh, in the last eight years it's like radically being redeveloped yeah. um, particularly the power station itself as yeah. this kind of huge landmark this sort of British icon of um, right. yeah it's like it's crazy it's like the largest brick building in Europe um, it's the same um, architect that built Tate Modern okay. um, and it once provided I think 20% of London's power okay. um, but now obviously it's being redeveloped into luxury apartments uh, yeah. uh, oh, that's what they're doing because I thought they were I heard some rumour about maybe an Apple shop but that was well like, yeah no so at the Apple headquarters so not a retail shop but um, okay. Apple are moving there okay. um, they've sort of commissioned you know Frank Gehry to do to do some buildings along the side um, it's this huge undertaking it's like mm -hmm. providing 3,000 new homes but of course these are 3,000 luxury homes that aren't really targeted at the people that are living there um, I think Wandsworth Council have something like 7,000 families on their waiting list for affordable homes but yet they can afford to provide these provisions for wealthy investors yeah. and kind of completely ignore yeah. the people that are very much a part of that and, and David Harvey talks a lot about segregation and ghettos and, and that kind of thing um, and I think Battersea maybe more than anywhere in, in London there's a really visible divide between the rich and the poor like you'll go from one street which is very affluent uh, to, to the next um, and it's very it, there's such a, a stark contrast maybe more than anywhere else I've been okay. in London which is really really yeah it's really really interesting and it's, a, it's very early in the project but um, it's something that's very much on my mind Okay. Um, at the minute. Okay. So, so that was that was kind of my thinking, really, for picking the four three six. So these are the Frank Gehry kind of crazy buildings. You no, know, it's a really horrible thing, like this huge sort of vanity project. Um, and they were they originally promised that forty percent of the homes on this development would be affordable housing. Uh, and they've since cut that by, I think, another 40%. So it's, you know, drastically shorter, um, which is just really sad. Like, there, there's such a need. Like, there's already 3,000 luxury homes in London sitting empty. I think about that a lot. Um, and it does. It certainly feeds into it. I don't think I would necessarily respond to it in such a direct way. But I, 
have been thinking about maybe thinking slightly more performatively mm. or if I'm you know having the show in Battersea mm. maybe a, a walk would be a better way mm. than a window display I mean the window display is great in many ways because it confronts people yeah. that wouldn't otherwise go into a, an art gallery yeah. um, but maybe a walk is a better visualization of the environment that mm. Battersea is becoming um, so, yeah, yeah.